Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Peter von Falkenberg, uh, head of research at the nonprofit called CoinCenter.org, a think tank out of Washington, D.C. Peter, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks, Nick. Yeah, can you can you uh, you know give listeners an idea of what you guys do? You know, besides uh, what issues you contemplate and what you guys work on. Sure. So, Coin Center is is a nonprofit research and advocacy center that's focused on the public policy questions that have emerged thanks to the development of Bitcoin and other decentralized computing platforms like Ethereum or Zcash. Basically, anything that we classify as an open blockchain network. There are all number of policy questions that come up with the emergence of these technologies. And Coin Center's primary job, I think, is to be a voice for the technology here in Washington, D.C., where we're based. There are people in Congress, there are people in regulatory agencies who are having to learn about these technologies because they may have laws already on the book that they have to enforce with respect to activities that people might do using these technologies. Or they may be interested in figuring out how they can promote innovation in this space, say, if they're someone in Congress who's worried about American competitiveness and jobs markets or things like that. So we wanted to set up Coin Center to be a, a, a central point of contact for solid research and information and educational materials that can explain the technology to people whose backgrounds are usually not software development, but law or or policy or politics. And we've been doing that for about three years now. And really, as I said, a lot of that's education, giving giving policymakers plain English explanations of how the technology works. We usually work with, you know, someone who's particularly, you know, bright and and able to express these ideas well in the space to to write a backgrounder that's like two thousand words or so, explaining some discrete issue in the space. So for example, quite some time ago, we actually had Adam Ludwin of Chain write a backgrounder uh, entitled Is Bitcoin Anonymous? Where we, of course, go into the details of, of how it's not anonymous. It's a pseudonymous system. There are these public addresses. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of ability to trace transactions, actually, in the current system. In fact, it's probably not private enough. And, and he, he did a great job explaining that. And that's something, along with a whole suite of other backgrounders, take one example, that we uh, will share with policymakers to help help them have the resources they need to make, I think, better policy choices. Because a lot of bad government policy, I think, doesn't come out of a malicious intent to harm the technology or people building it, but rather out of just ignorance. 
and 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 a lack of awareness of what's going on. So that's why education is probably our, yeah. our primary mission. Yeah, it seems like um, I bet there's tons of misunderstandings and misperceptions on both sides here. Um, you know, whenever a new law or regulatory framework is spoken about, people always say, you know, these guys in Washington, they just don't understand the technology. That's why they're going to make bad laws about it. So it sounds like, uh, you know, there's a lot of elements of that being true. And it does feel like, I guess, as a user of some of these systems and, you know, being on this side of the aisle that, you know, there's a fear of engaging with regulators. There's also maybe a distaste, like, you know, they just want to regulate this out of existence. They just want to clamp down on it. They don't, they don't understand. They, you know, mm-hmm. what's, what's the real case? Are you seeing that interact with in Washington do want to see it grow, these technologies, or are they afraid of them? Or what, what's the temperature like there? So it, it, it you know, <laughs> politicians and, and regulators are as diverse as normal people. And you'll find people who are excited about the technology. You'll find people who are wary of the technology. What you don't find is any kind of concerted conspiracy or effort to destroy the technology. And I think, I think stories of that being a thing that's happening are, are, are a bit fanciful. There is no monolithic government that would even necessarily do that. Every regulator comes to the technology because of their own particular obligations in the space. So if you're at, at say, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at Treasury, you're looking at this, is, is, is this a tool that's being used to launder money? If it is, are there things we can do to enforce anti-money laundering laws, even if people are using the technology rather than using cash or dollars? And, you know, part of the message that we always bring up when we talk to those folks, and they're very receptive to this message and they understand it, is like, best tool for laundering money is not Bitcoin, not by a long shot. The best tool for laundering money is cash and much more illicit funds flow through cash than through Bitcoin. So while I think it's important that if they're going to look at these technologies as they inevitably will, I think it's important they have the right information. There's also some framing we can do to just make it, make it clear or make it more evident that, you know, that, you know, we need to have reasonable priorities, but everybody's very receptive to that. You know, the, the other thing that I've always heard people say is, well, when you're when you're lobbying people in Congress or you're talking to congressmen, you you run into the big bank lobbying against you, <laughs> as as if because Bitcoin is potentially a, a threat to disaggregate their business models, they'd be pushing for laws that would be hostile to our technology. And and right. you know, when I first started working, I thought, well, maybe that is something I'll run into that would be kind of interesting because it's certainly true that that happens. Like in the early days of the internet, there were examples of old media companies lobbying against lobbying for policies that would have hurt the early internet, like more aggressive copyright policing and things like that. But in the Bitcoin space and the blockchain space, I, I haven't noticed that. Banks don't don't seem to take an interest in using regulation as a way to stifle this technology. And whenever they do take an interest in the regulatory issues of our community, it's usually that they just want to make sure that they're excluded from any new regulations. <laughs> that they get a card right. out, um, which it, of, of course makes sense. Everyone's going to police their own interests uh, or yeah. push for their their own interests. So, so it it really is um, pretty even. There there is no partisan divide actually at the moment with respect to blockchain technology here in DC. You find you find Democrats and Republicans who like the technology or are excited about it, and you find Democrats or Republicans who are. Uh, I wouldn't I would hesitate to say against the technology, but wary of it, maybe because they're more concerned about, you know, they think one day it could be used for financing terrorism or maybe they're worried about, you know, human trafficking and sites where where people dark web type stuff, drug markets and things like that. 
but it, it really runs the gamut both as far as the parties. And, and there are some great new champions that I think one of the best things I think Coin Center has been able to do in our three years is build relationships with some members of Congress and get them excited, more excited about the technology than they maybe already were and help them see what they can do as far as being a positive force for change, especially given that the U.S. isn't the most welcoming home for the technology because of some legacy issues with the way we regulate money transmitters and things like that. But uh, to that end, you see the formation of the Blockchain Caucus in the House of Representatives, which is a group of 12, maybe it's 13 congressmen who've all gotten together to have a nonpartisan or a bipartisan clearinghouse for just uh, briefings and events related to blockchain technology for members of the House of Representatives, a place where they can discuss, you know, possible legislation that could help technology flourish or grow, house resolutions, things like that. And it was it was started by Congressman Polis of Colorado, who's a, a Democrat, and, and Congressman Mulvaney, who has since left the House uh, for, for, for the executive branch, but was a Republican, and his position at the, at the chair of the caucus was taken by Congressman Schweikert, who's a Republican uh, from uh, Arizona. So uh, it's, it's a great, I think it's, it's a great example of how there are plenty of people in government who are, you know, genuinely excited about the technology and trying to figure out the best way forward as to making America competitive and a welcoming home for, for cool, cool innovation. Well, it's really good to know because it seems like, I mean, I'm an outsider. So it seems mm-hmm. like in the news, some senator or congressman will make a public statement saying blockchain can be used for, for terrorism or crime. And, you know, they, they try to propose legislation. And it seems like there's no other voices in government that counteract these, these single loud speaking voices. And then legislation just seems to, to happen and it's not good. But you're saying there are people that are, that are there to debate it and not let, uh, bad legislation just go through because someone just gets a bug in their ear and decides to yell about it. Definitely. And, you know, I, I think sometimes the perception of people outside of D.C. is, is largely shaped by the, the media. And of course, it, it would have to be because if, if you're not actually here attending hearings and things like that, you're, you're, you're going to get it from the press. And, you know, the press, it's, it's just sort of a fact that if it bleeds, it leads. So you'll always I think, see the stories about, you know, Congressman says that Bitcoin is being used for terrorism, like that's going to get a headline. Whereas Congressman says that the blockchain as a tool for digital identity in the future is worth protecting and encouraging. You know, one of those headlines is going to be plastered all over the, the trade press and, and also, you know, mainstream media, whereas the others are usually going to get buried. So the perception, I think, can get skewed just just because of the natural incentives of the media. And I don't mean to blame the media. Like I'm not I'm not, I'm not shouting fake news here or anything. Um, um, but but it's definitely a factor. And and you know I say that because they're they're actually so to take one example. You mentioned a, a congressman. Someone's whispering in there and saying, you know, this is used, being used for terrorists. There are there are always rumors of Bitcoin potentially being used. In, in a very small capacity or for a very small scale by um, groups like ISIS or things like that. And, and they're usually just rumors. There's very, is very rarely ever, ever any firm evidence. Recently, there's been some firm evidence of some really minuscule like test transactions where like a group in Syria put up a Bitcoin QR code and said, help us raise money for the, the war against, against the West or something like that. 
Uh, and then, and then we can all watch the address, and we notice that like there's almost no money in that address, and almost no money has ever been sent to that address. So it, it's actually not doesn't seem to be a viable tool for them, for for obvious reasons. Like like, are they going to be able to buy weapons in Syria with Bitcoin? Uh, probably not. They're going to have to convert into local currency, at which point they'll go through an exchange, or they'll have to be identified, and there's all kinds of confusion and mess. Are there people willing to support terrorism who actually use Bitcoin? No. So. It's just not a practical tool, both because of cultural and and pragmatic reasons, uh, and I think that's why we don't see widespread use. But the the the, the image of that QR code um, being used in this propaganda piece was was something that you, you know you're going to take notice of if you're in government or working in Washington D.C. And so that and a few other things spurred some groups um, who are not cryptocurrency specific policy groups to write reports about this, and the reports are by and large great. Because they basically say, look, there's very little evidence of this actually happening. It doesn't seem like it's a good tool for these groups. It's much better for them to use use physical cash, dollars, or or or, or other existing uh, you know financial tools. Um, and there's this blockchain, which means that a lot of the transactions will be transparent. So if it became a tool, it'd be potentially you know something that could be policed. And oh, by the way, and some of these reports are great because they, they basically make point centers arguments for us. If there was better, as in less chaotic and hectic and haphazard regulation of the technology, if it was, if there was, if there was fewer regulators, so instead of a whole bunch of state regulators like the bit license and just one federal regulator, and they had lightweight, easy to comply with requirements rather than heavy duty regulation, we'd have better mm-hmm. insights into the flows of funds on these networks and less chance of there being terrorism. So those were really good reports. And some of those reports, I'll add, spurred the um, House Financial Services Subcommittee on Terrorism and Illicit Finance to hold a hearing um, last June, I think it was the 8th of June, that the video of the testimony that Jerry, our executive director, gave on that day is on our website. Um, And Jerry, along with a few others, testified and roundly the conclusion was, basically what's in those reports. There's very little evidence of this happening. And this is very much, a, 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 it, to the extent this is an issue at all, it's one that law enforcement and uh, international authorities have the tools to deal with. Uh, and so there's no action needed. There's no legislation. You don't need to ban Bitcoin or do even some sort of half measure to, to make it difficult to use the technology. And kind of funny, yeah. on the exact same day, June 8th, um, another subcommittee um, in the House um, the Digital Commerce and Consumer Protection Subcommittee of the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, had another hearing uh, that was focused on, uh, I think the, the title was Improving Consumers' Financial Options with Financial Technology. And they had me uh, to testify about open blockchain uh, networks um, to tell the story about how these open networks like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, like Zcash are really leading the way when it comes to um, improving financial technologies and offering meaningful new systems that could really improve people's lives. Um, so it was, by all accounts, a great day on Capitol Hill. The funny thing, it was also the day that uh, Comey was testifying Senate side, so nobody really paid attention to it in the yeah, media. But, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to ask you, so how do you interact with, with uh, government over there? You're, you're, it sounds like you're called in to give um, educated opinion on various issues. Uh, how else do you interact with the government? And what, what role do you guys want to play in all sure. these hearings and uh, and all this stuff that goes on? 
So, yeah, so a lot of it's education, um, like, like we were just discussing, but some of it's also policy research. And, you know, both Jerry and I have a law uh, background and Robin Weissman, our chief policy counsel, is also a lawyer. We've got three lawyers on staff. We spend a lot of our time looking at existing laws. And when there's a when there's a suggestion that existing laws will already apply to activities in this space, we try and look at the law, determine how that might or might not be true, and then hopefully find a path forward where regulators will be able to enforce that law in a way that doesn't damage or retard the freedom to innovate uh, using open blockchain networks. And what that's looked like in practice, there's several good examples, I'd say. So in the field of money transmission licensing, there's this question of whether like, okay, so PayPal and Venmo need to get licensed as money transmitters um, in the states where they have customers isn't what Coinbase does when they hold Bitcoin for customers like what PayPal does when they hold dollars for their customers. Shouldn't it be regulated mm. as, as, as money transmission in that, in that limited case? But the, it gets complicated with Bitcoin because, of course, there are also companies like Blockchain.info or BitGo where they don't actually hold money for customers. They make software wallets. And in the case of BitGo, they may hold, say, one of three private keys related to an address on the blockchain that has some Bitcoin in it. Right. Are they money transmitters? I think the answer is a resounding no. And we need to really guarantee that non-custodial developers of this technology, like software wallet developers or even core developers or miners, are never regulated as money transmitters. But the statutes are really vague. So as every state has come to look at like whether they're going to apply these existing laws to Bitcoin companies, and most notably the Bit license in New York, we've tried to come in and say, hey, if you're going to do this, if you're already dead set on doing this, okay, we're, we can't stop you. But make sure you carve out these non-custodial uses because it doesn't make sense mm. to regulate them through life. And we worked with a couple different states on this, but our, our, I think our best work has been with the Uniform Law Commission, um, which is a private body that makes model laws for the states to then take in their legislatures and pass into law. And we worked with them on a virtual currency licensing law that they wanted to make anyway. And we said, hey, if you're going to make this anyway, make sure you carve out miners, make sure you carve out uh, full nodes, make sure you carve out software wallet developers, and make sure you carve out multi-sig wallets, assuming they don't have sufficient keys to transact. And in order to do that, we had to develop some legal language about what it means to actually be in a position of control over customers' Bitcoin. So we had the ULC, um, we worked with them to develop a definition of control of digital currency. And the definition is this, it's control is the power to execute unilaterally or prevent indefinitely a digital currency transaction. So you can run that test, you can run BitGo through that test, for example, if they have one of three keys, they can't indefinitely prevent the user of their wallet from transacting. That's the whole point. You know, they're just one right. key holder. It's just a fraud protection role in a software designer. And you can run a Bitcoin miner uh, through that test. Can they indefinitely prevent? No. The best they could do is just not put a transaction in a block, which means you have to wait 10 minutes for the next miner to come around. They can't prevent. Um, look at blockchain.info. Can they unilaterally execute transactions or indefinitely prevent transactions? No, of course not. All they do is they make software. The user is the one who holds the keys that determine whether they can transact or not transact. So. So I think it's a great example of how, you know, there was already this law and it might have already applied to all sorts of companies, Coinbase, Zappo, but maybe also BitGo, um, uh, Blockchain.info. 
And we were able to come in and say, look, if you really are dead set on licensing custodians of Bitcoin, just like you license custodians of dollars, make sure you right. carve out clearly in law these activities that are non-custodial. And the UFC did end up using our language and they finalized their Model Act. It'll, it'll now go to the state, uh, each individually, to decide whether they want to pass it into law. Um, but I think it would be a meaningful improvement over the uncertainty you find in states like California, where it's unclear whether the existing money transmission law applies to all these companies. And the regulator refuses to give these companies an explanation as to whether it applies or not, which means uh, without giving them a license and without telling them they don't need a license, it means that they continue operating in California at any moment. The regulators in California can come to them and say, hey, you've been operating without a license for the last three years. Sorry, uh, we can charge you with some really serious criminal penalties. It'd be much better to have clarity, I think, than that, than that uncertain state. Well, how do the states interact with you know, the federal government? Do you see a animosity, like, you know, leave us alone? We, we want to do what we want to do, or do they accept guidance? Or, you know, what's the perception there? Yeah. So there's no federal consumer protection regulator. So this licensing stuff is all about consumer protection, it's about making sure that the only people holding things for other people are responsible people, hence the licensing. Um, there's no federal version of that. You can be a bank and be federally regulated instead of state regulated by the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency in the Department of Treasury. And then you're regulated by the federal government and not by the state. In fact, if you're regulated by the federal government and not by the state as a national bank, and the states try and impose additional requirements on you, the federal government rules control, and the states aren't allowed to do that. But for money transmitters or for financial services companies that aren't you know, taking deposits and making loans as a normal bank would, there is no federal alternative. You have to, you, your only choice is to go the state route. And we, along with, I think, a number of people in the federal government are, are coming to the conclusion that this is a problem. Because in other, in other parts of the world, like the European Union, for example, you only have to get a license once for an e-money license, for example. Then you can passport them in all the other states. Or in the UK, for example, you only need to go to the Financial Conduct Authority. You don't have to go to 50 different states in order to get permission to do something. Right. And so we've got a real problem in the U.S. with that patchwork. And what's cool is the federal government in the Treasury, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency that I was talking about before, the people who charter national banks. They've decided, and we've commented on their process to come to this understanding three times or four times now, they've decided that they already have the authority, if they want to do it, charter companies that don't take deposits and make loans, that aren't traditional banks, but only do payments. In other words, are like just fintech companies that do payments, which really could include a company like Coinbase. And so it'd be, it'd be pretty cool now that the OCC is open to this, and I'd like to think in part because we helped socialize the idea with them. If some of the businesses that have been struggling with the state-by-state -state money transmission licensing issue, assuming they're custodial and they do need a license or they are going to be regulated pretty often, that they could just go and get a bank charter from the OCC instead of going to every state and having this awkward conversation about what Bitcoin is and why they maybe need a license. The states haven't really learned good. that. And the, the, the sort of trade association of state banking regulators called the CSBS, the Conference of State Banking Supervisors, has actually the federal government, the Treasury, saying they don't have the authority to do this. I, I don't right. think that lawsuit's going to work. I think they're just sort of grasping at straws in this particular case. Um, but it does give you a sense that there's a bit of a turf war between the states and the federal government when it comes to regulating, which is 
pretty unfortunate. Oh, yeah, there's all these dynamics. That, uh, it's a good thing that you guys are there as a voice for, uh, for open blockchain technology. And I, I figured there's a lot of dynamics, but I'm sure it's 10 times more than even you're saying or yeah. been able to explain so far. Yeah, there's so, also securities law, like the DAO thing that just happened. There's also the anti-money laundering stuff gets more complicated. There's commodities futures trading laws. There's all sorts of things. And so many of these things are just old legal structures that potentially apply to the new technology. And finding our way through that maze has been an adventure. And I, I like to think that we're doing as much good as we possibly can. I think it's better to do this than to just not engage because it's not like this technology is a secret anymore. It's not like it'll just right. be ignored. So, I, you know, something I, I hear a lot is you're either at the table or you're on the table. So we're trying to be at the table. <laughs> so, you know, your crystal ball, I would think, is more expansive than most because of who you're involved with. Um, what do you see as happening over the next uh, six months to two years? Any major events you see coming? Any uh, sea changes? Um, probably the two big areas I'd look at or keep an eye on are to what extent anti-money laundering laws, which are enforced by FinCEN, uh, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network at Treasury, to what extent they apply to persons who are developing new Bitcoin-like decentralized tokens or cryptocurrencies and selling them in a pre-sale or what you'd call an ICO, whether they are money services businesses and therefore need to know their customers and submit suspicious activity reports and things like that, or whether they're not money services businesses and therefore don't need to do that and wouldn't be in violation of the Bank Secrecy Act if they did a sale without doing KYC. Uh, KYC is know your customer. Right. That's a big open question. We just wrote a report where we explain why we don't think people who are issuing tokens, either like on top of Ethereum or Rootstock or or just issuing new tokens, part of new decentralized networks. We don't think they fit the definition in the current law of money services business. And therefore, we don't think they're obligated under the Bank Secrecy Act to do know your customer type uh, clients when they're selling their their new thing. And the reason for that is pretty is actually can be expressed in a straightforward, non-legal way. Money services businesses are supposed to be intermediaries. They take from Alice something valuable and they give to Bob something valuable. They're, they're an intermediary. A business that's creating a brand new virtual currency or, or something like Bitcoin or a token and selling, selling it to one person, they are Alice and they are selling it to Bob. They're not an intermediary. They own this thing. They don't have to sell it to somebody else. It's theirs. And if they want to sell it, that's fine. That's them selling their own property. And we don't regulate persons, and that includes businesses, who are just selling their own property as financial institutions, as intermediaries. And if we did, it'd be kind of a draconian result where everybody who just sells something on their own account has to report vicious activity to the government about the people they sold to. Right. That's, that's a bit Orwellian. So, so we, we think that that, that area is, is still gray and we worry about the potential for, for an enforcement action against the token seller for failing to do you know, suspicious activity reporting. But but I, but I think there's very good arguments that, that such a person should not be regulated as an MSB. And then the other area is securities law with respect to these people who are creating new tokens. And there's been a fair amount written about that lately, and we've written a fair amount as well, about whether the SEC has jurisdiction here, whether when they raised money to make the token in, in the pre-sale and then gave delivered the token later, whether that was actually the issuance of a security, which... There's a whole legal test for that. It's 
called the Howey test. It's an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit from a third party, from the managerial efforts of a third party or promoter. And and you kind of can see how that might apply. What what we think is that it's very important that the SEC look carefully at each particular project, because I think some projects are projects where people really just want to buy this thing to get rid. It is this profit-making mechanism and profit-sharing mechanism. But in other product projects, it's more like, no, these are people building a useful token that's going to achieve some result on the internet. Like Filecoin's a good example. The guys at Protocol Labs who are raising money to build a decentralized cloud storage system. Filecoins Hmm. will be necessary to get file storage on that decentralized network, and it'll be the unit of payment for people providing storage on this network. In this case, selling that thing up front, even, even if you're selling it before you built the thing, it's a lot more like going on Kickstarter and raising money to develop a smartwatch and promising the buyers of the, the, the funders of the crowdfund a smartwatch. You're promising something of useful value. So the SEC has yet to opine on whether those sort of useful tokens are securities. Um, and we hope that they'll, they'll say, no, those aren't. And the ones where it's really just about profit sharing, like the Dow, for example, which they issued a report about saying it wasn't security, that those are securities and people need to register. I think it's a good place to draw the line. It's unlikely that, that the SEC would just withhold from having any enforcement actions against any token sellers. But if they're going to have these actions, I think it's right to target the ones that really are just naked vessels for sharing profits and to avoid going and treating the utility stuff as security, because I think that's a bad result. Makes sense. Okay. Well, very good. Well, how can um, folks interact with you and uh, learn from you and, and you know, maybe participate in what you're doing in, in some way? What's the best sure, way? Sure, sure. So we're, we're not like a trade association. We're, we're not like a member-driven group that only looks out for the companies that support us or anything like that. We're just an independent research group. So, you know, Jerry Brito, our executive director, and myself and our, the rest of our staff formulate our agenda, figure out like how we can do education better, what kind of policy research we need to do. And then we just rely on the community to basically make donations to support that mission. If they, you know, if you see what we're doing and you like what we're doing, we, we really badly need um, your support uh, to be able to keep doing it. We, we have support from some of the larger companies in the space, like the Coinbase's and the Zappos of the world. We have some support from investment firms like Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures who are interested in the technology. But over half our support actually comes from individuals some of whom are a few very generous individuals who've given us a lot of support, but also a lot of small donations. So if you like our work, please visit coincenter.org and, and, and go to the donate button. We, we love any kind of donation. We even, I designed some fun t-shirts uh, that I think are pretty nice Bitcoin swag, actually. So you, you get something in return. <laughs> and then as far as getting involved on like our, our, on how we you know, formulate policy and think about things and looking at our work, everything we do is public. We, we never keep anything secret. So all of our reports and educational materials are available on our website. And we're always happy if you see something there that you think it, it, that is less helpful or could be more helpful, or if you see something missing, like there's an, an aspect of the technology that hasn't been well explained by the resources on our site, we're always help, happy to just talk to people in the community. And as I said, most of our, our backgrounders, for example, are written by people in the community. So always feel free to reach out. I'm at Valkenberg on Twitter, and I'm usually pretty responsive. Well, very good. Well, thanks for coming. And I'm really glad to get your perspective. It's a completely unique one. So thank you yeah. so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Nick. 
The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.